What an amazing and wonderful day. Uh, not the least of which, I think I saw Scott Schimmel wearing a tie. I don't think I've ever seen him wear a tie. I, I, I think Carrie maybe tied that for him. It was fantastic. Uh, I hope you're having a great morning. And it's a great morning to be in the presence of God together, that's for sure. I want to continue uh, the narrative following what you heard the worship team read. Uh, it goes on. Uh, there's a parallel story to the one that we heard read. It's also in Luke 24. It says, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, this, was this because they were so preoccupied that their emotional state, uh, their worldview uh, that had been blown up? kept them from recognizing him, uh, or was it something that God was setting them up to be surprised? I don't know. We don't know. But he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And, and this is a sort of a, a disruptive moment for them. It says here, they stood still, their faces downcast, and it's sort of like, do you want to tell them or do I tell them? Because it's a bit intrusive, and here's why. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have been happening here? So it's a little bit of a, I can't believe this. I'm in this horrible, distraught state, and you're asking me to explain something that you probably should know. Where have you been? But it's grief that's driving this. Have you ever had an experience where you feel like your whole world just caved in on you? Of course you have. That's what life is, a series of those. What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Part of this implied the one who would redeem Israel was that he was going to make life easier for us, get rid of the Romans, elevate us, make life the way it's supposed to be, Jews in a Jewish state. Now, they're talking to a Jew, and this is probably what perturbs them, that this Jew that they're talking to doesn't know what's going on, apparently. They go on, and what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. Now, this is another sermon for another time, just that line right there. We'll, we'll come back to that some other time and, and look at that phrase. I'll just leave it as it is. Uh, no comment necessary. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions, these would be men, went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. What a shock. But they did not see Jesus. He said to them, I really feel bad for you. No. He said to them, how foolish you are. Pay attention. Listen up. How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Questioning, what kind of redemption do you think he came to bring? A political solution? An economic solution? He came to change everything. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. This roadside inn. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Uh, Christ wants to take you from heartburn to burning hearts. He wants to take us from being so confused about what he's up to in the world that we start to see it from his perspective. This is the disruptive presence of God that we celebrate today. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them, assembled together and saying, It's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Uh, He may as well have said boo because they were so taken back by this. They were shocked. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Now, especially for the guys who walked with them to Emmaus, they were probably thinking, this is the second time he said we're missing something. What are we missing? What is going on here that we're not recognizing, that we're not seeing, that we're interpreting absolutely opposite to what apparently is going on here? Because I am scared, and I am confused, and I have no idea what's going on. And so Jesus is going to clarify that for them. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. It's me. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they, were, while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? Now notice, they went from being shocked and awed to delighted and, and, and enjoy, but they still don't recognize quite what's going on. Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Moses, the Torah, prophets, the Nevi'im, the Psalms, the Ketuvim, law, prophet, the writings, they call this the Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, Tanakh, the, the Bible that Jesus read. So from the Bible that Jesus read, Jesus revealed to them this good news, the gospel, this transformational message personified, embodied in him. 
Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. What began then continues today. It's shocking to think, right? In fact, later when Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. This is the uttermost parts of the earth he was talking about. We are the ragged edge of civilization. We're the last outpost in the known world. The gospel has come to us, so we're part of this outpouring, this outflow of what we're reading about in Luke's passage of his gospel, chapter 24. The Messiah will suffer, rise from the dead on the third day, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached, beginning right here. And he says, you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. I hope God has disrupted your life. If he has not yet disrupted your life, I hope you're open to being disrupted by his presence. I hope you're willing to let down your guard. Stop being so heavily defended against him. Not spending all your best energies holding him off. The tomb is empty. Christ is risen. This is the heart of the gospel. The good news. This is a shocking, scandalous message. Not just of the cross, but of the empty tomb. And not just of the empty tomb, but of the risen Lord. Easter celebrates Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Easter presents witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Easter proclaims that Jesus is the Savior and Lord of the world. So three points I'm going to touch on. Let me read the points and I'll go back and, and give you what supports these points. Easter calls us to have faith in what God has done through Jesus Christ. First point. Second point. In Christ, we see the majesty of God revealed in practical ways. Everything God does is practical. Third, because Jesus is Lord, we receive the salvation promised by God. So the first point, Easter calls us to have faith in what God has done through Jesus Christ. Easter does not call us to put our minds in neutral. Easter calls us to put our minds in gear, to engage with the mind of God, the very heart of God. Faith in Jesus Christ is a matter of compelling, convincing, be believable evidence. Now, it's not to say that you can marshal arguments to talk somebody in or out of believing. But it is to say this, that Jesus' resurrection from the dead and everything that precedes it and everything that follows from it is compelling, convincing, believable evidence. We believe the truth revealed in Jesus' life, death, resurrection withstands scrutiny. About every generation, somebody takes it on themselves to, to look at it and take it apart. Uh, a famous attorney, a, a British attorney, said, I'm taking it apart. And he ended up writing a book called Who Moved the Stone? He was a, he was a litigator, a famed lawyer. But at the end of his study, he said, I've got to say, I think it's what they say it is. He became a follower of Christ. Somebody read that book. They were so inspired but skeptical, they ended up writing a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Somebody read that book and the book before it, a Chicago Tribune, hard-nosed uh, investigative journalist, uh, and ended up writing a book called uh, The Case for Christ. And so it goes. 
A good argument does not lead a person to Christ, but an honest, open heart prepares the way for Christ. Jesus' resurrection is the foundation for our faith. But it's not just an interesting intellectual fact that we're talking about or celebrating here today. It's more than that. Let me tell you why. Jesus was perfect in every way, but that wasn't enough to inspire faith, was it? These, these people who had walked with him for three years had seen that he was perfect in every way. They saw the things he said, the things he did, the alignment, the perfect congruency of his life. And yet it wasn't that that inspired them to have faith because they all scattered after his, res- after his crucifixion. His atoning sacrifice on the cross wasn't enough to inspire faith. They all saw the way he died, the way he forgave the people killing him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They saw how he died, and even that didn't inspire faith. It was awesome and awful. But what it did is it it crushed their spirit to see him crucified and placed in a tomb where they assumed he would rot, and all their hopes are dashed. The fact of his resurrection isn't even enough to inspire them to have faith, because after all, here they were on the resurrection day, and they weren't believing it. It wasn't the resurrection as a fact, as an interesting event or circumstance that compelled them to have faith. What was it? It was Jesus' presence. It was Jesus' presence following his resurrection that inspired them to have faith in him. To this day, it's Jesus' presence in people and us being present to Christ. When you bump up against Christ, when you open your heart and your mind to him, when you start walking with him, it's truly life-changing. But again, it's disruptive because it's no longer me pretending to control my life or the world around me. It's no longer me investing all my energies in defending against him. It's no longer me saying, God, I I demand and expect you to convince me of things, answer all my questions, and then maybe I'll consider. With all due respect to anybody who, who does not believe, it's simply the case that we need to be present to God in an authentic, awesome, I mean, honest way. Because Jesus Christ is present to this day to those who are willing to open their hearts and minds to him. Here's why. The the witnesses didn't change the message. The message changed the witnesses. They started the day saying, "I I, I don't believe it. I'm skeptical. They ended the day in awe and wonder in his presence. In fact, it's probably even more accurate to say this, that the messenger changed them from skeptics into being witnesses. They were reluctant believers when people were telling them Jesus had risen from the grave. Now they were enthusiastic witnesses to declare his glory among the nations. A radical shift in a very short time. And so we, we believe in him, not just ideas about him. Our faith is in him, not just faith in faith. Even sincere faith isn't enough because we can be sincerely wrong. We all know that. And so it's Jesus' presence that inspired faith in him. Second point, in Christ, we see the majesty of God revealed in practical ways. Everything God does is practical. We have a way of saying, oh, that's a spiritual thing, as if it's a special category of non-knowledge. Knowledge that is spiritual, so therefore it's so flimsy and it lacks substance, it's not credible. The fact is that we see the majesty of God always revealed in practical ways. Again, Didn't you feel your heart burning within you, being in his presence? Wasn't it amazing? He asked for something to eat, and he ate fish. 
We touched him. We saw his hands. We saw his feet. We knew he was dead, but now he's alive. Practical. And like these men walking to Emmaus, Jesus clears the fog of our fear and our fallibility. Fallibility simply means we can be wrong. But it's our fear that captures us. We're afraid of looking stupid, being naive, being taken, being had. We're afraid to let go of those things that we think will support us, the things to which we make attachments that become idols of a sort. If I just have this, then I'll be okay. If I can just accomplish that, if I can just achieve this, if I can only overcome this. It's what I wear, it's what I drive, it's, it's where I live, it's, it's who I date, to whom I'm married, to whom I'm not married. It's all the things that, that we put in place because we're fearful. Because if I don't have this, I'm exposed, I'm vulnerable. It's hard to believe that there's a savior, though we definitely want one, until we have this incredible impact, the practical impact of God up close and personal. And yet we run and we resist this. But then when we encounter him, our hearts are lit up with the glory of his living, transforming presence. We're lit up. We can't explain it. In fact, we need a new vocabulary. How do you begin to explain this to people? How do you start to tell your family, your friends? We experience faith in him as a relational reality, as beloved sons and daughters by faith. The abstraction of a resurrection gives way to this incredible, tangible sense of, I am beloved. I no longer feel like a betrayer of God. I feel like I've been invited to be a son or daughter by faith. John writes it this way, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's God's work from start to finish. We either cooperate or we don't. We participate or we don't. John goes on to say uh, in his gospel, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have life forever, full life, eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. The world already stands condemned. Any of us standing before a court of law could be found wanting and lacking. We all know that. And that's why we work so assiduously to present the idealization of the self we want to present. We're so fearful that we'll be discovered as the real people we are. And yet when we become real before God, all of a sudden it's like the weight of the world has been lifted off our shoulders. And we hear him say, you are my beloved. Yes, but you are my beloved. Yeah, but I did that you. The final point. Because Jesus is Lord, we receive the salvation promised by God. Not on our merit, not because we deserve it or we've earned it, because it's an incredible act of God's love and God's grace. His sacrifice on our behalf. Because he wants us to know the life for which we were created. Well, save from what then? Save from a false story of who you are. A false story of, of to whom you belong. Because your life is more than your job or lack of it your money or lack of it, your fame or achievement or lack of it, your failures, no matter how many they may be. 
You weren't created to be a slave to sin. And you might say, well, I'm not a slave to sin. I'm a very good person. Okay, I'm just saying anything that falls short of God comes under the category of sin. Going back to that then comparative and competitive way that we live. I'm okay compared to so-and-so. If I can just do better than they did. And not as bad as those people do. And that's a, that's a fearful, slave-like mentality. It's a scarcity way of approaching life. And God offers us a prosperity way, not as in, as in the form of materialism, but as in fullness of life. That we are, out, we are allowed to be vulnerable and say, here's where I am in Christ. I love the way Michelle Scott talked about that. Throughout the morning, we've heard people talk about these things not as hero stories, how awesome I am, but stories about here's how awesome God is and being able to share part of the journey with us. And, and in hearing these stories, don't you say, that's me, I'm like that. It's not being, saying, being able to stand up and say, I've arrived. It's saying, I'm on this journey with the living God in the company of people who are coming alive in him. And so the raw honesty and the authentic vulnerability is par for the course. We've stopped posing, stopped pretending. We're simply enjoying being beloved sons and daughters of the Lord. And so what are we saved for? Well, we're saved to be free in Christ for the life he's created us and is redeeming us to experience we're created in the image of God to live in his grace and to walk in his love, to walk in his grace, to live in his love. Those are the defining and describing factors for us from now on. His love in us, his grace for us, his love through us, his grace through us. The grace and love to be able to tell the truth and confront when necessary. The grace and love to be able to comfort. So when we believe in Jesus, he writes a new and better story in us in the context of the very real world in which we live. It's not a pretend make-believe everything is perfect story. It's a this is the new plot with all the conflicts and setbacks, all the trials and tribulations, but the plot that he's writing in us is going somewhere very good. Saturday, I'm going to go up to the Bay Area and I'm going to be at a memorial service for a 24-year-old man, a wonderful young man who died this week. The guy was so full of life in every way. When he graduated from Point Loma a couple years ago, I was standing in our front yard talking to him. He was just this incredible guy. And I got the word this week that he, he died. What a devastating thing for his family. They're in the midst of grief and loss, as you can only imagine, right? Unless you've been through this, then you know full well. But the great thing is his dad said, hey, remember when that 15-year-old Jewish kid showed up at that Young Life Club and accepted Christ? He's talking about himself. I said, yeah. And I met that beautiful young woman who became my wife. We built our life around Christ. They've been wonderful parents. They had a wonderful son. They're surrounded by people giving them all kinds of support and comfort and love. They are in deep, deep grief and loss, and yet they have hope. See, this is the power of the new plot, the new story that Christ is writing in us. It doesn't remove conflict. It gets us through it. It doesn't remove adversity. We not just go through it anymore. We grow through it. You see, so it we're becoming more alive in spite of the things that we experience in life because of the very presence of Christ in the midst of our life. And so now we find that we've joined this community of all the other witnesses to his resurrection and this couple, this dear couple, at this moment of grief and loss on Saturday will not only express that and be honest and open, and there'll be a lot of tears in that massive crowd of people who'll be there, but there'll also be this, this incredible sense 
that we are witnesses of the resurrection. As Christ has risen, so shall he. So shall we. And so we're commissioned to declare his glory among the nations, not as know-it-alls, not as authorities on all things spiritual, simply as people saying, I'm not trying to talk you in or out of anything, I'm just telling you, this is the incredible thing I've experienced in Christ. So because Jesus Christ lives, we believe in him, we walk with him, and we're learning to serve him one day at a time. In our successes and in our setbacks. Here's why. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. I'm going to say Christ is risen, and if you believe this, then your response is Christ is risen indeed. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. And as my dear friend Tom says, Christos Anesti, Alithos Anesti, right? So Lord Jesus, this is in any language what we proclaim, what we celebrate, what we declare, that you are Lord, and because you are Lord, we can be saved, and here's how. We can come to know you as your beloved sons and daughters by faith. I pray that for each one of us here, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen.